Yep. That podcasting. We're podcasting once again. Podcasting once again. I feel like <laughs> every single episode, not recently, because I haven't done this in a while, but the last several episodes, we begin it by being like, wow, I haven't done this in a while. <laughs> but like this but time, the wild, really but haven't The done wilds are just becoming increasingly yeah. longer periods of time. Yeah. Well, how are we, Jack? Yeah, oh God, I don't know. How I'm stressed. That's how I am. <laughs> but fucking here we are. I'm back. I was going to say... Uh, I was in the belly of the beast, uh-huh. the Imperial Corps, uh-huh. went the, back the home. The new world. The new world, the, the Americas, <laughs> yeah. But then I was, I don't know, still in it. <laughs> Just yeah. on the other yeah, side yeah, of the yeah, pond, yeah, yeah, I guess. So. Yeah. Um, a different, different overlapping yeah. subsystem of the core. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Different operational uh, op- theaters. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Interacting with a different portion of the environment <laughs> of um, yeah. imperialism and oppression. Yeah, I tell you what, though, Metasystem back home. Perhaps not doing so well. Perhaps <laughs> not doing so well. I don't know how much, how many takes I actually have on like what's happening because everybody can tell things are just completely falling apart. Um, but it's nuts. More people are talking about it for sure. More people are like, "Oh, is America you, falling you mean apart?" The cla- oh, the collapse of the country and <laughs> yeah. the system. And, yeah, like yeah. this actually seems really bad. Like yeah. we get bad news every single day, and it's not getting better. Even though there's a blue guy in the White House. So. <laughs> is it more people don't be talking about it? But I feel like this has been the conversation for years. It's right? been the conversation for years, but I feel like there are more libs who are like. Oh. Let's just get out of <laughs> the fucking streets. Let's just destroy things. Yeah. Riot. Who cares? Well, um, I feel like I feel like. Um, we have all been like um, gradually coming round to the real reality of an impending apocalypse. Oh, yeah. And I think yeah. people have just chosen different <laughs> times. And some of them are mundane and stupid, right? Uh-huh. Like I've been thinking about my own sort of like considerations of impending <laughs> catastrophe. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> and perhaps my triggers for that are greater than the ones that I'm about to state as examples. But I've been also putting it on a continuum continuum with those people who were like, Brexit, that was the yeah, catastrophe. Well, yeah. Or like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or like, I don't know, yeah. Maybe maybe I'm just like coming to terms with the reality of the whole sort of like dark timeline meme or something. Yeah. But, I don't you know. know, I mean. But but I was about to say though, but like the, 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 the coming to terms with it that you're recognizing liberals as having uh. is this kind of like, uh, realizing that they no longer believe their own bullshit, you know? Yeah, like, for sure, yeah. How long can you go on being like, our opinions are in the majority when you poll people, yeah. but all of the actual concrete political realities are sliding in totally the opposite direction to the yeah. ones that you think are. Um, but I don't know. Maybe it just reveals the hypocrisy to other people. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I'm telling myself. Yeah. But or I mean, maybe, maybe it's mainstream. Like maybe it's like your everyday progressives and liberals yeah. are like losing faith in the liberal thought leaders. Yeah. And that kind of bullshit. Who knows? I mean, I was th- I was thinking about this today because I was while I was back home, I was like, oh my god, like people I never would have thought would say things like this are now just like burn the Supreme Court to the ground, go throw bricks at Clarence Thomas, you know what I mean? But like, and I don't know, that was making me feel good because who wouldn't like to see a brick get thrown at Clarence Thomas allegedly? But I don't know. I was thinking about it a bit more today, and it just seems like this always happens in like quote-unquote revolutionary periods which i'm not saying we're experiencing now by any means but like in the lead up to revolutionary periods you always see like the libs or like the liberal equivalent and i'm like when i say liberal i'm being very generous i mean like everybody like you know like value form people or whatever right but like you always see people get radicalized who otherwise wouldn't be and you always see the rhetoric speed up and everything so i guess all i'm saying is just like 
to the commies and the anarchists and all the cool people out there who are like, wow, look at all these liberals. Like, you know, they're, fuck yeah, they're like ready to go. They're ready to, you know, change things and do all this stuff. I think when the rubber meets the road and in any kind of like real revolutionary period, when it comes time to like, okay, we kind of won. Let's talk about how we can actually change things. The liberals are always just liberals. You know what I mean? I say as there's a police car going by, but like, I don't know. They'll always show you kind of like what they actually want. It'll get to that point where it's like, okay, let's change the world for the better. And then they'll go, let's institute term limits in the Supreme Court. And they dust their hands. Like everything's fine. And then they, you know, shoot the people in Bavaria or whatever. But like, I don't know. They're, all I'm saying is like, Maybe I'm creating relatively, like, absurd in-groups and out-groups, but, like, they're the people who want to, like, replace the value form with something based, perhaps, on liberty and equality. There's kind of everybody else. And even though, like, these groups are fluid and they move in different circumstances, you know, when you're out on the streets protesting and throwing bricks or whatever, like, you'll probably be beside some liberals. At the end of the day, like, don't let them fool you. Yeah, I think probably what it is is that no change in the external world is suddenly going to switch the commie flip, flip the commie <laughs> switch in the heads of all of these like yeah. quote unquote liberals and progressives. Um, it probably makes the case for um, our organizations and institutions, or particularly uh, radical organizations and institutions in America, having a mm. very consistent line on critiquing the constitution, calling for a new constitution, yes. and yeah. saying what that should have in it. And if all of these liberals however close they are to actually being thought leaders in the liberal and progressive community, <laughs> if they're all willing to band, uh, bandy, I don't know, put forward the idea that you need some kind of like reforms to the constitution, minor mm. tweaks, as you say, term limits or whatever, mm. heaven forbid, like capping com- campaign contributions or something. Yeah, oh my God. Um, they're at least proposing something which might lead people to think hey this is a possibility and then you're ready to swoop in with your like yeah well actually let's abolish the senate and get rid of the judiciary yeah, and have exactly. whatever and like yeah exactly uh, one person one vote and like, yeah yeah imagine else. that liberals imagine that imagine <laughs> like someone's vote counting for Ab- something. abolish the presidency <laughs> abolish abolish the executive branch abolish the senate abolish the ju- well yeah okay whatever um yeah i don't know it felt every time i go back home it's always like I don't know. I don't know. It's an, it's a it's a weird feeling because it's always like home and it's always awesome and it's always great, but it's also like that thing that always used to be a spirit Halloween that's just like always an empty warehouse for the rest of the year. Now it's like a church with like a neon open sign out front. You know what I mean? It's like things are not feeling so good. But um yeah, I don't know. It's weird. It's very weird. Also just like I've been really trying to come to terms with like what a failure of American, like the ability of the American political animal to like project its power around the globe would look like. Not saying that's any, that's something that's going to happen anytime soon. Although like, who knows? Nobody has any idea what could happen. Um, it could be good. It could, it could let people who have like wanted to have like self-determination and like, you know, we're going to be talking about Stafford Beer here. Like, you know, if there's someone like Allende, like something like that could maybe happen a little bit easier. But also it could just be an apocalypse. Who knows? <laughs> so, you know, who knows? What are you going to do? I mean, it depends who else is going to step in and fulfill the imperial function, I guess. Yeah. Or what kind of regional hegemons are going to influence. I don't know. Mm. Who knows? Or, if it, or if it's even possible. I mean, or like... the CIA will go rogue. And... Yeah. Well, that's something I've been thinking about is, like, legitimately how much power do you actually need to do something like what the CIA does? Like, realistically, the CIA isn't able to, like, or wasn't able to do all of the, like, crazy things that it did, right? Because, like... 
there's some ultimate American like hegemon. I think realistically it was able to do those things because it had resources that that imperial hegemon gives you, but also just because like there was an agreement amongst the bourgeoisie, the big bourgeoisie, that they were like, this is what we want done. Presumably well, that can happen whether or not there's some big ass American hegemon or not. But suffice it to say, who knows? This is all way <laughs> too complex to, I think, yeah. make predictions. But, yeah. So. <laughs> This is not a podcast that engages itself in system four thinking. Yeah, exactly. We are not predictors of the future. We're barely system <laughs> I one. I long ago gave here. up having takes. Like, <laughs> and yeah. my, my recommendations are always terrible. Yeah. So just yeah. like. Well, yeah. beans, everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've um, I, uh, recently acquired an allotment. Yes, so Dan, yes. <laughs> very exciting. Jack and I have now, well, not quite double because I already had some growing <laughs> capacity, but Jack and I have now. Um, uh, increased our capacity to grow beans and other food. Very stuff. absurdly, for the listener, they gave Dan the allotment literally next to me. That's like a that's like a one in a hundred and twenty chance for them to do that. They just did. So right. hey, cool, nice. So we got that going for us, folks. The commune is being built. We're taking over. We're almost there. That would be hilarious if that's like the base of revolution. <laughs> it's just like oh, just we just doubled our allotment size. Go from there. What are you gonna do? It's base building. Right? Base building. Yeah, exactly. Literally just acquiring land um, we do know the person over the other side of me which is also very uh -huh, funny uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, although we are renting land <laughs> yeah we'll get there we'll get there <laughs> no we will be renting our land um <sighs> potatoes have been dug up um that always feels like a bit of a shift um they were first early so they're kind of out a bit earlier but uh we're back we haven't podcasted in a while um things are changing things are awesome things are great um so I think perhaps what we're going to try and do here is look to the future. I know you said that we are barely a system four over <laughs> here, but we're going to engage in a little uh, intelligence monitoring of the environment here. And we read um, the one Stafford beer book we could get our hands on, because they're basically all really expensive. And this was the one book our local library had two copies of. Um, so, Dan, we read Stafford Beer's Diagnosing the System for Organizations. Uh -huh. Bit of a mouthful. Um, it's really interesting very useful uh bit difficult to kind of get through at certain points because it's very technical mm -hmm. but it's also written for like a schmuck to understand so it was pretty good um we'll get into kind of some thoughts here in a second that i had but um overall what did you think and what did you kind of pull as meaningful nuggets yeah i think it needs a second reading to yeah. um gain everything that you might from it not because as you say it's particularly obtuse in the way that it's it's written, but I think because it, it progressive it progresses at quite a pace. Mm, yeah, definitely. Um, and yeah. you need to keep pace with it. And the only way to do that really is to keep redoubling your efforts to understand what it is that he's trying to say. Um, yes, it's. Uh, I don't actually know how long his other books are, so I was about to say it's mercifully <laughs> short, but who knows, actually. <laughs> I imagine they're tomes. Yeah. Um, seems to have a curious background in that it seems to be the result of some kind of collaboration he made with some students mm. in their efforts to conceptualize and apply his viable system model um, to various institutions, organizations. And so it's kind of a guide to teach you to um, apply these ideas to any given institution that you are familiar with. Mm. Um it, it, including like giving you little exercises to do, which yeah. I, I think neither of us did. No, <laughs> they're degree. way too many. Yeah. He is like, you need to be doing these. He says that yeah. like, throughout. I the mean, book. this is a, a this is like a hundred and fifty page book that could be the basis of like a six month course. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but 
I mean, we've yeah, we've we've interacted with Staff Abir a few times, right? Mm. We produced a little video for YouTube, and also we read Designing Freedom, mm. and so we've sort of like touched on some of these ideas, the viable system model, um, but. There were definitely things that I thought I understood about that sort of like uh, five system uh, tiered structure for a viable mm. system, which I didn't fully comprehend. Mm. And this is very definitely filled in a lot of gaps. So hopefully we can uh, demonstrate some of our new learning. Yeah, it's a little <laughs> so. Pass it on, I suppose. <laughs> it on. And also perhaps apply it to certain uh, situations that might be applicable to a left mm. because... This book, I mean, who do you think it's written for? Like, I mean, it's pretty bourgeois. Yeah. It's written for managers, I think. I think it is just like a handbook for man managers and specifically managers of capitalist firms. Mm -hmm. And I mean, this book was written later in his career. So I was almost expecting the opposite. But I think that this is very much management cybernetics. But having said that, the system that he's describing, the viable system, he is saying you can apply this to anything. Yeah. So. I mean, as is evident in most of his writing, there is definitely this contradiction, isn't there, between... Mm -hmm his background and his work, and then also his more... I mean, his real-world experience of politics and some of his more... Um, I don't mean this in a pejorative sense, but like a utopian thinking, I suppose, yeah. or like um, uh, idealism. But that, that idealism comes from maybe uh, a slightly more bourgeois place, I suppose. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's a guy who gets paid to like help make capitalist firms yeah. exploit better, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe so, not, so, yeah. so none of his examples are trade unions or political parties or sure. like food co-ops or anything like that, gun clubs or something. Yeah, they very well, well could be though. I think. Yeah, I mean, they, this is this is what we might like to try and mm. speculate on. Is like it is a it is a a model whereby he uses examples of like government uh, mm. uh, bureaucracies or corporations or what have you, but. Um, it's an abstract model we might be able to apply to all sorts of things. And some of the principles that it suggests mm. um highly applicable to any amount of thinking if yeah. you're trying to organize anybody to do anything. Yeah. Even just yourself, maybe. Yeah, exactly. Well, you are the smallest recursion there is. I think you said that in the last reading we did of him. But, I mean, this kind of, you know, when we read People's Republic of Walmart like 50 years ago, and the kind of one of the lessons you get from that book is to not just be such a juvenile leftist and go, we need to fucking burn Amazon down, dude. It's like, no, like, learn from these corporations. Learn from what they do. <clears throat> because they've definitely learned from us, right? They've learned from the calculation debate. So I, I got a similar vibe from this book. I mean, yes, he has described describing corporations and he is describing all this stuff but it's also like perhaps one of the reasons that's slightly alienating to left organizers or whatever is because nobody takes it seriously as they should nobody treats it like a job well that's not true people treat it like a job but organizations as a whole kind of generally don't and what i mean by that is like nobody's serious about like i suppose like instituting the, the kind of system that this book talks about because A, it's a lot of work, but B, it also seems a little bourgeois. But um, I think we'll find that it like isn't. Mm. And there's a reason that um, Beer was kind of building on the thought that we kind of came across in that book by um, Matron and Varela where they were like kind of a bit hippy-dippy being like, dude, you can apply like these ideas to like a germ and to like a corporation. It's like Beer kind of came along and like made that a little bit more adult and was like, we actually kind of can um, and here's how. And then once you do that, you realize that like similar rules apply to everything. And um, if you kind of black box certain things, you're able to come to some pretty astounding conclusions. Um, and he definitely does. So, mm -hmm. And he does also, you say, it's funny you say like, um, no, 
or few left-wing organizations are liable to be willing to learn from sort of bourgeois management theorists mm. and it's almost the 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 opposite is the case in this book as well in that like his prescriptions are not likely to be well accepted by yeah. bourgeois managers yeah oh for um, sure yeah because uh, this is directed at uh managers i think mm. at various levels of recursion inside institutions or countries or what have you um and it's basically telling them you don't have as much power and influence as you think you do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and be very careful or be very mindful of the interventions you try and make. Um, but anyway. Yeah. 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 No, it's good. I mean, he's, he starts off by saying that um, this kind of... Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a couple sentences because I think that this pretty clearly mirrors some thoughts that we've had in the past. So he says, Hitherto, the approach of organizational structure has only been one tool, the family tree organization chart. You know, and that's just, it's just like worker, supervisor, manager, upper management, etc. Typically, this chart has been frozen out of history. It's ge geological genealogy. Things have got like this because events, inventions, markets, opportunities, entrepreneurs, capitalists, workers, economic environments, glory and misery, all intervening, have led to this and not to something else. The organizational structure has been rationalized after the event, and there it sits, offering the manager its own explanation for how things actually work. I mean, I think that, like, kind of mirrors the socialist project pretty clearly, right? It's like, sure, we we read all of these, you know, books on history in an attempt to understand how modes of production got to the way they are. And we kind of come to this conclusion that, like, things are the way they are because a lot of it's out of our control. And we've come across this idea that you bring up quite a bit, Dan, about, like, you know, uh, trying to maintain the status quo and that actually leading to quite a big qualitative change when we talk about changes in modes of production. It's kind of in the abstract. But, um... What Beer is trying to do here is trying to stop that and say, well, what about if we thought about it rationally and like, but not the kind of rationality that's like, here's what I want and I'm just going to make it happen. A kind of rationality that's like, here's the way things actually work. Here's what I'm left with. Um, it's, you know, the history. People don't make their own history, right? Whatever. But it's like, I'm going to try and make something better. That's kind of what we're trying to do with the socialist project, right? It's like, here are all these modes of productions that we've been left with. Here's the one we have now. Um, how can we rationally, with what we have, like, make something better consciously? Um, and, yeah, that's, like, the first page of the book, and that stuck out to me because it's, like, is it possible to, like, institute things? Like, we talk about, you know, um, uh, managed and conscious transition to socialism. Is that possible? We'll see. But I think this book gives me hope because he's basically saying that when it comes to organizational structure, it is. Mm -hmm. Here's how. <laughs> yeah, I wonder whether it's true if he, that he's taking the same kind of like scientific approach to management that sort of like Marxist, scientific mm -hmm. Marxist, historical materialists, what have you, might want to take to analyzing social structures and then therefore intervening in social structures kind of thing. Because his is very definitely... It's definitely a science of management, right? What's what's, what's cybernetics? The science of effective organization. Exactly. Is that yeah, his yeah. line? Something like that, yeah. Um, and it's very much predicated on what he takes to be scientific laws. I mean, it, what was what really stood out to me actually was how much the law of requisite variety like hangs over all of this. Sure. Like yeah. at any point of recursion in the model, or any point of recursion in a system, at any stage of communication or interaction between any um, of the various uh, systems of the viable system model, the fundamental question is like, how much variety does each uh, side of this interaction have and how much variety is lost or gained in various interactions and how much can we manipulate variety by mm -hmm. either increasing it 
or reducing it where necessary kind of thing um mm. and that, i mean that that um that question of requisite variety leads to his most radical conclusion right and the one which leads him to think purely in terms of decentralization um because he's saying that like any higher level any basically management can never have the the variety necessary to match the variety of the operations what he calls the operations um section of his model at the same time operations can never have enough variety to match the variety in the wider environment right mm -hmm. so it's all about recognizing how little you control control you have over the levels of recursion below you um and it gives him this um it leads to all of the radical implications of it which are he, he's basically checking the imaginary power of the managers think they have to control the, the system their organization kind of thing yeah um and trying to get away from that and trying to uh, give a model for how an organization actually functions because systems do function yeah. or the ones that he is the, what he's trying to do is promote a way to have a viable system which basically just means like one that's able to survive and exist mm, in any given itself. yeah perpetuate itself mm -hmm. in whatever environment it exists in kind of thing um and so it's possible to do, but it requires all of these different interactions, um, all of these different uh, attenuations of um, variety, I mm. suppose. I don't know whether that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does, because it's like in Design and Freedom, we came across his example of managers in a store. If they wanted to have, if they literally wanted to have requisite variety to manage everybody in a store, there would have to be one manager for every worker and they'd have to follow the worker around. And at that point, they'd just stop being managers, right? So he's saying that like, that is impossible for management to have enough variety in a literal sense without any kind of attenuation or amplification to manage operations no matter what the system is you can think about this with a brain too like the brain you know well we'll okay i'll leave the brain because i think we're gonna have to talk about the brain a little bit more when we talk about meta systems and stuff because it's a bit more nuanced but like he, yeah there is an example he uses in this that he may have got may have been in designing freedom as well where he's talking about uh, law enforcement right yeah and the, basically the only way to attenuate um the variety that is represented by a citizenry and its possibility for it to either be the victim of or the perpetrator of crime the only way to attenuate that variety would be to have 50 percent of your population policing the other 50 percent kind yeah. of thing yeah. um, which he obviously says is absurd right and then he talks about like amplifying the variety of the police by yeah giving them faster cars or mm. guns or mm. whatever or surveillance or well yeah well i wonder whether the, but then also i think that may be like uh variety attenuation oh, you're sure. you're yeah. sort of surveilling the citizenry mm. your or like checkpoints or mm. internal passports kind of thing would be a way of attenuating the variety that's that the citizenry is in the position to mm. um manifest and therefore threaten the control of the police kind of thing yeah i suppose i suppose it would be amplification to record everything everybody says but then attenuation to have some sort of technological way to filter out all the bullshit and just go this guy mentioned a bomb he's about to get on a plane right um regardless i think you're absolutely right to talk about the his theory of autonomy because i'm gonna read another bit 
where he talks about where a theory of autonomy actually comes from. He says, the beginnings of a theory of autonomy of decentralization lie in this simple fact, rather than in political theory. It's a nettle to grasp because senior management assumes and likes to exercise the power to poke around in the intimate managerial details of its subsidiaries in System 1. But think, the prerogative to intervene indiscriminately does not have requisite variety, and it cannot competently be done. I mean, I think that's a pretty... Uh, what's the word? Not ludicrous, but the opposite of ludicrous. Profound, profound stat. Yeah, it's a pretty profound um, thing to say because, like, you know, we like to think that it's like, no, actually, the political theory, it's this, this, and this. But it reminds you a lot of when Marx would get frustrated with, like, moralistic appeals to socialism, which perhaps was a bit reactionary, but also, like, he wanted to say, no, it just makes more sense. Like, we're losing all of this energy in a capitalist system. There's so much waste there's overproduction, there's underproduction. What we're trying to do is just link the use value that you make when you work with the use values that people consume when they consume. And there's this fucking waste that you have with exchange value, right? So basically he's saying that you don't need, Stafford Beer is saying rather, that you don't need some big fancy political theory to figure out that autonomy is good. You just literally need to look at the way systems operate. Because I think that like systems and corporations that try to micromanage everything very quickly realize a that they can't do it and b if they try to they mess everything up like i mean i think if anyone's ever worked in a retail job or like a job period like when your boss comes poking around it just slows everything down and so it's so much better for your boss to just go tell me what i need to know i'll do audits um at a certain point to just make sure everything's okay but at a certain point who knows how to best to operate its operations, right? And he obviously isn't going to go full anarchist and just say, whatever, no bosses, man, because there does need to be somebody steering the ship, and we'll see what that means. But, um, yeah, it's pretty profound, I think. It mm. rocks. It's very mm. cool. And it's funny, I'm thinking now that that kind of, we've all experienced it, or most of us have that kind of, like, management style, which is kind of panopticon-esque, yeah. where it's kind of like, your manager manager can't be there surveilling all of you all of the time. Like the police can't be there mm. policing everybody all the time. But that kind of intervention, which is sort of just arbitrary application of uh, force or discipline or whatever, just to remind you that they're ever present, is meant to be a kind of like um, attenuation of the variety of the workforce because the the workforce can be doing any amount of slacking off or suffering any amount of like physical illness or just like not being into being at work that yes. day kind of thing <laughs> exactly. you know yeah. like, and there's so much variety there's so much stuff going on in terms of your workforce's interaction with the wider world and um, how they're experiencing it how they're experiencing being at work and there's so many different variables in terms of what you're encountering um at work mm. that like managers can't possibly be fixing all of those problems all the time. Mm. Um, but they can't just be reminding you that it's your responsibility to just work harder in the face of these adversities, you know, <laughs> yeah. or just telling you how much they expect you to achieve. Yeah, exactly. And there's, there's one of the really, I think, most interesting things about the viable system model is the way that it gets around the nuance of management because it'd be very easy to just have the three-tiered little uh, thing where it's environment, operations, management, or whatever. But like... The system two, which, as we remember from the video, Dan, that you and I made that is on YouTube that people can go watch now, system two is like the little, it's kind of like a little backbone thing. In this, it's really described as like an anti-oscillatory, oscillation, whatever device that basically operates in between management and operations and kind of likes 
helps put into place what management says. So I, that's a really interesting idea because it kind of like decouples management from being this like nagging, like do this, do that, do that. Like fuck, goddamn it, management's telling me what to do with like this very clear system that's designed to just like stop things from wriggling around too much. And what does that mean? If you're in a capitalist firm, it would mean something like, uh, oh, we got blight on our potatoes this year. How are we going to deal with that? Oh God, we're all going to lose our jobs because now we made too many potatoes and we're not going to be blah, 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 blah there would be some sort of dictum that would come down from management and then system two would be like, how can we best implement this? Let's figure out ways production control is one of the things that he talks about in this. And one of the, one of the things that I think is fairly progressive in this is he talks about how system two and generally what management does as a whole needs to be very transparent. You need to see what it's doing. Like he says that in a capitalist firm, production control is scary and workers hate it because they have no idea what's going on and they have no access to any of the numbers. They don't know why they're being told, you know, stop producing potatoes or whatever. And so it freaks everybody out. But as long as you have this thing that is kind of like it decouples, but it also like really intermeshes at the same time um, management and operations into this really transparent thing that is just there to like stop things from oscillating too much, you appreciate it if you're one of the people down in operations because you go, oh, they're actually helping. Because you don't necessarily realize the connection between your firm and everybody else or your firm and even like consumers. But if you had this one thing whose job it is to just do that and let you know what's going on and allow you to have an open thing of communication between different operational firms or whatever, um, that's a really progressive idea, I think. Um, and one that I think we'll see when we go to talk a bit about how maybe we could put some of these ideas into like left projects. Um, would really be useful, I think. Yeah, I think this distinction between... Um variety and oscillation is quite important because he does draw it out as a distinction. I think his dis differentiation between the two hinges on variety being this thing that's almost external or mm. it comes from some other institution that you're interacting with or your interaction with the environment kind of thing. Whereas oscillation is something that's internal to the activity of any particular system one in this sure, model, yeah. I suppose. So they could actually be perfectly well attenuating and amplifying variety in all the directions necessary in the interactions with the environment, um, in the interactions between the operation center of a system one and the management center of a system one. But if there isn't any communication between all the different sections, imagine like it's some kind of like food production company where some people grow potatoes and some people grow broad beans and they're all kind of like, okay, we're trying to, we're going to advertise our thing and we're going to, we're going to do these kind of, we're going to try and limit production of this or we're going to exploit cheap access to certain resources in the environment, blah, 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 blah. If they're all just sort of selfishly interacting with the environment without consideration of how their interactions with the environment are actually going to interact or affect other system ones interaction with that same environment, they're all going to start fucking each other's like yeah. activities yeah, yeah. without even realizing it kind of thing. Mm. Um, kind of reminds me of actually when you talked about um, uh, People's Republic of Walmart and there's that example of like Sears, right? They try to <laughs> they try and organize Sears where everything is internal markets, right? There's no oh. communication, there's no coherence. Everybody's just like battling with one another. And like the example, go back to that, that episode, or go back to that book, the examples of what happens are ludicrous, right? Like there's just no cohesion, no coordination at all. Um, and as you say, that kind of like what he calls system two mm. is designed to like, okay, how do we dampen this oscillation kind of thing? Um, but in a way which is not dictatorial. Um, and I think he gives some really quite interesting examples of what system two's yeah. uh, 
interaction the system might be kind of thing mm. I mean, yeah that was all really useful i think that's where kind of like that was a part of the book where it's kind of like school book-esque kind of demeanor really helped it because it was like here's what it would be in a firm here's what it would be in a health service here's what it would be in a family and you're like oh my god the system two of the family it's ideology <laughs> it's just horrifying but um yeah so i think we should actually talk about management then um management is defined in a really interesting way and it's all balanced in a way that kind of like almost like manages the variety of that you could possibly well the variety of like authoritarianism right and it's a basic it's a way to make it so that management isn't just this thing that like dictates and tells you what to do and is designed so that it can't get too big of a head, right? And so it's split up. The meta systems, if everybody remembers from our video, it's split up into three, four, and five, systems three, four, and five. And respectively, three, four, and five, I think an easy way to remember that is system three is control, system four is kind of like intelligence, and system five is like literally just like policy and ethos. I mean, there's a bit more to it. But system three is, I think if like in alien were to come down if everything was organized along viable system model lines they might be like they would either say all of the power is held in system one because that's operations or they would say that i think that all of the power is held in system three because system three is literally just like directly above operations and it and it manages the here and now is what he says the inside and the here and now it manages the oscillations that come up uh, whenever it gets something from higher management that says, hey, you know, uh, there's going to be an El Nino year this year. We got to manage our food production in this specific way. It makes uh, resource allocations and suggestions slash dictates to operations to say, here's what we need done. So it manages all of that. And it also kind of does all these little audits and it makes sure things are running properly. But then four is like gathers intelligence, which I thought was interesting. It's like it literally just kind of gathers intelligence from the emergent market. He makes this this distinction that system one, the operations, monitor their own um, environments. So if we think of this this whole system as a capitalist firm, say a corporation, actually, then system one would be like the various um, sh shop fronts, maybe, right? Um, and they're monitoring their own environments. It's all recursive. So they have management in their own uh, operational systems. And they go, oh, in... Uh, say, like, this borough of London, people seem to like this. So, you know, we'll put that up at, like, impulse buy items that people buy here. We'll put that up at the shop at the front. But system four, they do the emergent market. And, like, the market, the different markets and the different environments that operations keep an eye on, when you put them all together, they're, the reason I say they're emergent is because I think that they're greater than the sum of their parts. And so you need something that is literally just there to see it in its totality and go, okay, here are some trends that are coming up that we need to figure out. Here are some things that uh, we might be okay with. And then they give all that information, the intelligence to system three, and they go do this, make it happen. And then there's system five, which is literally, he brings up this word over and over. It's just ethos. It's it's like, what is what is it that we want here? And if there are some decisions that need to be made, system five makes it. I mean, when uh, Stafford Beer was in Chile, he said this was just uh, Allende, right? So it's really interesting. I think that like balancing out management like that really leads to a way where it's perhaps not super hierarchical and i think you brought up a really good point before this about we need to actually figure out how we could make these things like democratic and we'll get to that but all in all um it would be much better i think to be a schmuck working in operations with this as management than something else because there are all sorts of things and checks and balances and whatever so it's really fascinating yeah. management huh yeah, yeah yeah um yeah i agree with all of that i think i took a different sort of like 
uh, schema for understanding those, but mm. I think they I think I think they match quite well. I was thinking of like system three talks about it being like the sort of here and now, the day to day planning. You know, mm. um, how am I going to oversee all of these different operations? in a coordinated way kind of thing and then the kind of system four is the more sort of future planning kind of thing and as you say it's like interacting with the environment as a whole so like if you have all of these like um supermarket elements of a supermarket chain and they all have their little okay i'm this town i'm this borough as you say kind of thing and then um the system four is like okay all of the united kingdom as Mm. a whole and then also it's the kind of like Included in the environment is usually includes like the future as yeah, a part crazy. of the environment kind <laughs> of thing. Nuts. Um, and then he talks about there being these different levels of System Four, right? There's the kind of like there's R and D, or mm. there's like uh, other types of future planning, you know. Um, and there's a degree to which they their various interactions with the environment overlap, and that would be quite positive because they're all sort of working toward a similar end. And then you could have this sort of like poor functioning of System Four, where actually there's not any overlap between all of these different future planning sections of your business or your organisation, kind of thing. Um, and then a piece of terminology that he's maybe we've talked about it in the past is this idea of like homeostasis, mm. right? um, the sort of like systems which or functions which um, stabilize uh, the internal environment in an organization kind of thing and I think he thinks that there is possibility for a lot of like um, sort of breakdown of the relationship between system four and system three kind of thing sure, yeah. and ideally there would be some kind of homeostasis between the two where the two balance each other out um, and what I took away was this idea that one of the aspects of System 5 is that it's there to monitor and maintain this sort of like homeostasis between 3 and 4. And as you say, it's sort of done with uh, sort of ethos or like, mm. um, which, because in the past we've kind of talked about it being a system which sort of like maintains the sort of like coherency of the sort of organism, I suppose, kind mm. of thing. Um, but I'm not sure which of those systems in this instance it would be that would fulfill that function kind of thing. Maybe mm. system five in the sense that it has this kind of like um, overarching, okay, a picture of the whole organization kind of thing and where it's doing now and what it's doing in the future kind of thing. Mm. And then there's also that, that finally, that idea of like, we've come across it before and he talks about it in this book of the sort of algidonic signal, the pain signal, which yeah. sort of demands an immediate response kind of thing. And that kind of like circumnavigates everything and goes all the way to system five because that's mm. the level which is like, okay, uh, we can see everything and we can like make some kind of immediate intervention kind of thing. Mm. Um, Interestingly, I think it also goes both ways, and it also isn't just operations going to system five. I think I think you could probably set it up so that it operations going to system three, operation which would I guess just be system two, but operations one thing of operations going to system four, fucking system five going just to one you know uh, operational center. It, it, that's really interesting, and maybe I think that like the reason a lot of left projects have kind of failed is maybe because they didn't have a system. F- Five that was strong enough if your system five is just surviving under capitalism as an activist group or whatever yeah you're not getting rid of capitalism right you're gonna be the dsa or whatever um yeah we'll get to that i think we'll get to that because i think yeah i think the, the mcnair actually helps with that but um it yeah this is all really really insane and i think one thing that this all makes me think of too is like this i don't think i really understood the recursive structure until we read this because like he really makes it clear. There's one section of the book where he says a lot of people mess up the BSM because they don't know what 
they can apply it to. And they think that they can just apply it to, if it's a capitalist firm, everything's a viable system. You know, advertising department's a viable system. The IT department's a viable system. And this took me a little bit to understand, but he's basically saying, if you can hive it off or whatever is the phrase that he says, that's viable system. So if it's a capitalist corporation, a viable system is the entity as a whole. And then it's also, the viable systems are really only like shop fronts and things like that. They're not each department because you can't just have you can't just let the advertising guys go do whatever as without being a part of the system because they're actually part of that system. A shop front can be a shop front and yet can be recursive and you can go down to like people in the warehouse, the people here or whatever. But um, yeah, you have to be selective with what you apply this to. And if you're doing some kind of left organizing project, you have to do the same thing. You can't just say everything's a viable system. You have to really be specific with what is and what isn't. Um, and I don't think I got that until reading this book. And I think maybe in the video we make, it's a little bit unclear as to what <laughs> what what recursive yeah, 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 actually yeah. is. We left that off, didn't we? And then we had to be told really you <laughs> yeah. want to include something about recursion because it's quite important. So yeah, and then also it on at the end. So it was good for us both to have that sort of reminder of yeah. He talks yeah. about that very early on of the significance of recursion, and it's interesting. It's it's one of the things. That that makes him privilege system one above other elements of this system. It's just mm. like system one is actually a recursion. So basically, like he has this, he has this, um, he has this diagram of the viable system model, right? And it has all of these systems one, two, three, four, five, um, and like, you could have a whole series of different system ones which all fall under a, a sort of like um, a vertical hierarchy, which then includes the management sections of three, four, and five. Um, but any system one also includes all of these system one, two, three, four, and five elements exactly, kind of thing. Like yeah. Just some lower level of recursion kind of thing. Mm. So whether it's like you have this sort of like um, a plant which produces uh, a certain thing. It produces pens, say. And there's like all of these different machines at this plant that produce different elements of this machine. So then all of those machines and all of the teams that work on all of those machines could be... Mm lower levels of recursion system ones all to themselves kind of thing and then of course you've got all the all the people who are system ones to themselves at another level of lower level of recursion kind of thing um but then all of your sort of that plant then has like a management structure that also goes up to like a system five and a system four and what have you kind of thing so mm. Yeah, it's really interesting. And it's he, he says at the beginning, doesn't he? He's like, whenever you're thinking about your system, you need to be thinking in threes. You need to be thinking at a recursion level lower than it and a recursion level bigger than it. So if it's, say, again, a corporation, recursion lower than it, probably some kind of shop front or online business or something like that. Recursion bigger than it, say you're like Yukonuba and you make dog food, it's the entire dog food industry, right? And then you can keep going until it's like markets and then it's just like capitalism. <laughs> and it's Amazon. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> Everything. Um, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. You're always thinking in threes like that. I was like, oh yeah. Because you need to be thinking of, if you do that, then you're always thinking about how you're organizing things below you and where you fit in in your environment too. It's really, it's really mm. interesting. And then you brought it up before a bit, there's this question of like, okay, what is and what isn't a viable system inside some greater structure, right? Mm. And his, his definition for viability is, can it exist on its own, separate from that institution in a given environment, say? Mm. Um, and he I mean, obviously uses the example of like, human beings are viable systems, but like, if there were no oxygen in the room, yeah. you wouldn't be a viable system because you wouldn't be existing in an environment. Mm. That, um, and so it's another interesting thing of like, everything is in an environment, and everything is in some that chain of like 
there is a lower level of recursion and there is a higher level of recursion. And so there is no kind of, obviously you can, there's one way of looking at it where you're looking at individual entities, individual organizations, individual systems, but at the same time, everything is included in some kind of network mm. and of connectivity and of um, okay, significance and reciprocity and all sorts of things. Kind of yeah, thing. for sure. And I think I think that two things on that, I think that like, the way he privileges the environment as like just as much of a part of a system as everything else, as you're saying, is like hugely important. And I think that's something that perhaps a lot of like organizations have not done, the environment within which they operate. And also just like, well, I don't know. I, I suppose we, we haven't really talked too much about the kind of like central dictum of this book, which is the purpose of a system is what it does. I suppose that that like ties a bit more into like management and about like ethos and about things like that. But it's also about like, if you think of a higher recursion level of yourself and you've never thought about that before, say if you're a capitalist firm, like that lets you think about, well, what is it that I'm actually doing? What is the next higher recursion up from me? Is it the industry that I want to be in or am I a part of something else? Is it that like I make dog food and I have my indie little business and I sell everything on Amazon? I'm part of like the broader economy or is it like oh i'm actually like just at the whims of amazon aren't i it's yeah i don't know it's very interesting the purpose of a system is what it does i mean that's something that like all left organizers need to yeah. be hammered into their skull like <laughs> the purpose of your trotsky sect is to sell, <laughs> newspapers, sell newspapers and, and <laughs> provide full-time employees of the sect and income I think. <laughs> exactly exactly yeah um so yeah so but i guess before i don't know what but i guess before we go on to like um, apply this to like some left organizations there was a question that I kind of had which we were discussing a little bit before we started recording which is like okay this is a kind of like bourgeois management theory book mm. and replete through this is this sort of like sense that although um, autonomy and um, independence is not only like a virtuous but it's also necessary given the the implications of the law of requisite variety. There's always this discussion of a vertical command structure. There's always a place for management and management decisions to be made. And so I was thinking about ways in which you could apply this model to a democratically organized workplace, mm. say, kind of thing. How much is there a distinction? What's the because because the model has like operations, which is like what what you could imagine to be like all your schmucks on the shop floor kind of thing, mm. working their machines and the, the blue collar, saltly working class. Yeah. And then you've got your sort of like management, your sort of like white collar people who have who been to business school. And, yeah. <laughs> um, but other than saying like, okay, it is necessary to have some kind of management function be fulfilled in some way. It actually leaves open a lot of space for that management function to be fulfilled in whatever way you want. Like yeah. you could just get everybody who's your you your blue collar shop floor worker one day out of five. Okay, we all get together and we decide upon the what what how what we're going to make the decisions that would otherwise be decided by some separate management structure, but um, do that together kind of thing. Mm. Uh, or how much could you? have all of those people on all of those shop floors elect people to do the system three function, you know, or how often could they all get together and have an annual general meeting and fulfill the functions of system five, you know, mm. or like how often could certain people with certain expertise at system one get together and have a brainstorming session on future planning and fulfill some system four functions. And it sort of seems to me that you could definitely use these principles to inform a democratically organized workplace and economy 
And it doesn't necessarily have to be strictly hierarchical, even though this book is sort of couched in those terms because it kind of had to be. Yeah. Well, I think absolutely. I, th I think because there's this recursivity in the structure, everyone should necessarily know and indeed take part in at least some kind of management function. I mean, I think like just having a structure that everyone understands that is recursive and that applies to every level of everything would do huge things for like um, the management operations divide because at a certain point there kind of almost isn't one. I mean, I will say we came across in cybernetic revolutionaries that people in operational like system one units did start to chafe a little bit at like the interveners or whatever they were called. And these were kind of guys that were like maybe anti-oscillatory, maybe some kind of like system three star or whatever he calls it, like uh, auditors. But the guys that kind of came around and were like, don't do that, do this. And that kind of, Eden Medina kind of made it seem like almost like a class started to form there. These guys that like went around with their clipboards and their nice cars and told people not to do it. But I think what you're saying is that this necessarily, he can say all he wants that like you don't need a theory of political, a political theory to understand autonomy, but you do <laughs> like yeah. a bit. You definitely do. And you need to understand that like power dynamics would play a huge role in the social structure of a society. And if what, I think what you're saying about like, if these things are democratic and if people are all immediately recallable, no matter what system they're in, no matter who they are, um, that would also be big. That combined with being able to like understand management structures, that just completely demystifies everything. It's like, oh, that's, he's the system four of where he works. I'm the system four of where I work. But someone else is like, wait, you're the system one. What are you talking about? So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, sounds like craziness can ensue. <laughs> yeah, it does. Wait a minute. Maybe this doesn't make <laughs> Some sense. Some kind of break is happening. But um, <laughs> but yeah, but it's it's a, it, what what is implied by I think what you just said is that um, you can't just take this book, <laughs> apply it to present day capitalism, and be like, okay, if everything was a viable system, we'd have socialism. Fine. Yeah. Kind of thing. Like the the contradictions of that are implicit in the case of Chile and in Allende's Chile, right? Like they're trying to take a capitalist economy. They're sort of trying to implement some of these things, but it's still kind of like some kind of hybrid, slightly socialist, slightly capitalist. Well, it's like, I don't know. I don't want to get into like debates about uh, state capitalism <laughs> and all sorts of things. Yeah. <laughs> but suffice to say, like they had to make it work. And they had to make it work in terms of people's understanding and people's, like, self-conception. I mean, maybe it's a system two error, right, in that mm. instance. Like, there isn't this sort of, like, overarching ideology that dictates people's relationship to the system. And so all of those interveners were still stuck in a kind of slightly bourgeois mindset, as everybody was, perhaps. Everybody still wants to become white collar as opposed to blue collar. Yeah. Everybody wants to improve their lives and get the mm. flashy cars and have the power over people and that kind of thing. Um, so you just hadn't sufficiently gone through some kind of uh, transformation that would be necessary to actually get us to a different mode of production. Mm. And there are political questions that hang all over. Well, it's a different, in some ways it's just a totally different topic. Um, but this is like a, um, a sub-science of the broader science of socialism <laughs> yeah no for sure definitely and it's in, yeah i don't know it'd be nice to find like i don't know there aren't necessarily like cybernetics departments anywhere i don't think like presumably there are in the back of this book it's written in what like the 80s they list all these people that are like doing great work with the viable system but perhaps those people don't exist anymore maybe they do but um okay maybe maybe then we kind of get into it a bit about like talking about because i think we already have started to do this about like what lessons can we take from this and apply to like actual organizing 
Well, I, th I think that the first thing is to just not be allergic to like control because like this is literally, if you were to read this book and go, Tuber's why I don't like the idea of trying to control. I just want anarchy, brother. Uh, that's cool. I respect that. But also like, this is the science of how you have effect, not only effective control, but also like control from inside of the system itself that literally balances itself out. So, I mean, I was thinking about this in terms of three different spheres. I was thinking about it and how you could apply it to a capitalist firm, which we've talked quite a bit about, how it could necessarily be applied to some kind of like bourgeois democratic party, and then how it could be applied to anything from like a party based on the SPD to like something brand new. And I think that something brand new, like I bought up McNair earlier. The one thing that's really stuck with me from reading his book was about organizing the entire community and about how if you want to have, let's just call it a political party or a party of some kind of working class party, it can't A, just be concerned with politics and it can't just go after like workers, right? Like, or it needs to go after people who, everyone who's relying on the wage fund. And McNair explains that as like, uh, you know, like people on unemployment, people on the dole, people who are like spouses of people who work. Um, and so I think that that's very different if we compare that with the bourgeois party which like the bourgeois party, the only people they're interested in the like operations and management connection to the environment are voters, right? That's really all they care about. But I think that if we look at the connections that the system itself has to the environment and what you'd want to see in a new like working class style party, it would be much more generalized and also much more like you need to have very specific operational centers. Your system ones would need to be very specific. They need to like go, uh, you need to have your activists and your things like that, but you'd also need like trade unions if you're talking about the SPD. I mean, like that's not necessarily something that like the Democrats really thought about in a very long time is, hey, imagine working with trade unions. But you'd also need people who like, I don't know, like to be very specific, like soup kitchens for homeless people or like, uh, I don't know, all sorts of different kind of operational centers. Um, because if you really take like McNair's dictum seriously about like, no, let's like, Let's actually like try and do the right thing. And the thing that will work for all of us, which is organizing everybody relying on the wage fund, your operational theaters, your system ones are going to be different. And I think there's going to need to be some sort of way of managing that um, in your kind of meta system. And the last thing I'll say on that is that <clears throat> I think that pretty clearly your system five would need to have a strong ethos. And he, he definitely recognizes that because he says, here's the people you can let in the party, have them as much debate as you want. But also here's the people you can't have in your party. You can't have the people who are going to be like, but what about if we just kept doing capitalism, mm -hmm. dude? But nicer. Like, keep that out. <laughs> no kiss, Thomas. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Literally. I mean, like, you need to have an ethos that is like, we are here to do no more capitalism, man. And here's what we're here to do. And you can't budge from that at all. Have as much dissension in the ranks after that as you want. But, like, you need that ethos because if you don't, you're going to be an activist group, right? So I think that's mainly what I'm thinking. Yeah, it's made me think of a lot of things. Um Initially, I was thinking about the Labour Party, right? Because you're talking mm. about like um, an organization's interaction with the environment and a bourgeois political party seeks to capture voters. But the Labour Party is going after basically the same voters as the Conservative Party. Mm. They're not looking to expand the voter base in any way, um, nor are they trying to change the minds of those voters in any particular way. All they're trying to do is prove that they are analogous to the Conservatives, Um and therefore, they're so basically they're an organization and they're trying to match in some way the variety that's presented by the environment. 
Um, and rather than trying to use either of those um, things that we were sort of alluding to earlier, efforts to amplify variety or attenuate variety, i.e. I am amplifying their own variety or attenuating, i.e. lessening the variety incoming from the environment kind of thing. Mm. Um, they're not actually making any any particular efforts to do either of those things. Or it's just flipped. It's the wrong way around. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and we've talked in the past about the law of requisite variety as it applies to organizing a socialist con economy and some of the implications um, or some of the ways in which that law um, vindicates or validates in some ways some socialist axioms, the idea of like um, the working class organizing their own liberation, I suppose, and also the idea that the working class could collectively run society kind of thing. And what's being demonstrated there is like, okay, you need all of the variety of... Basically, if you're going to have a political party, if you're going to have the ideal working-class political party, you get as many people in as possible exactly. so they can match the variety of the community mm. as best they can. And that's the, that's the sort of mass party model, isn't it? That's the mass membership model. Um, and that's how you then do things you as you were describing before, is actually like reaching into other communities that you can't access in other ways kind of thing. Um, and then we were talking before in terms of like amplifying the variety of that political party. And then you bring up the instance of like soup kitchens, say, mm. or like, so that therefore you're, you're um, improving your um, the variety you can give to the community, i.e. you're improving your worth to that community. But then also you could actually like set up subsidiary institutions inside the community. I Maybe it's those soup kitchens, but maybe it's like trade unions, right, which mm. are not linked to your political party. Well, they're not directly part of that political party, but they are linked. And so you're therefore like, once again, amplifying your position in the environment kind of thing so it's all about building your capacity to match the wider variety of the environment which you otherwise can't do um without these efforts i suppose yeah no absolutely i you bring up i think a really really great point there in that like you are going to need a way say you're able to set up this perfect political party where you have operational representation in like everything you have like uh, you go after, say, like activist groups like Black Lives Matter, who are really trying to do something about like police brutality. You go after, uh, you have like operational units that operate autonomously that are like even things that are fun, like gun clubs or things like fucking, I don't know, like, I don't know, cooking or some bullshit like that. Teaching people how to like plant potatoes. That would be fun. Play guilty. Play guilty. Well, <laughs> God, yeah, I could not be the person to explain that. Um, but you're also, as you say, you're really going to need something. And this winds up being system four that combats changes in the terrain because like, okay, you set all of these things up, you have all of these connections and they're able to communicate with each other. Okay. Say like the people talking about police brutality <clears throat> and who do a lot of organizing work to get people to show up to protests or whatever. Um, they need protection from say like some sort of operational group that trains people on like protecting protesters. So there's some sort of like regulatory apparatus there where they're able to communicate and blah, 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 blah. But you also need something, and this is where, say, like a kind of more anarchisty style of organizing things runs into a bit of trouble, which is funny because I feel like anarchists are like actually much better at like getting shit done when it comes to organizing. Um, you need something that can kind of go, okay, here are the changes in the terrain. We've done this uh, uh, 
research into, say, like the political sphere, we know that, say, this law is going to be passed where they're no longer going to let people, you know, like with, uh, who look a certain way, like protect people at protests. That's illegal now. You can't do that. That's what cops are here for. So you need something that can kind of go in and kind of like work around that. And that winds up being a system four. And that obviously we can see how that works in partnership with system five, which is the ethos. Um, so it's interesting. Like it, it isn't simply enough to get the connections between all of these different systems. You, and this is the kind of like communist organizing project is that like, you need something at the top. You need management. You just do. It sucks. Everybody hates it, whatever. We're trying to do it in the best possible way. But you need people who can kind of go, you know what, we need to actually direct our attention here. We need to put our attention here. And uh, this, I think, does a very good job of explaining how that could work without pissing off a lot of people, you know? So, yeah. Um, also, what you said about kind of attenuating the wrong variety, I thought was really, really good. I mean, the main point of that whole first part of designing freedom is that so many capitalist firms attenuate and amplify variety in the wrong way. And the example he gives is computers. He's like, you should not be using computers to just like give management or operational people way more information than they can handle. You know, they ran Chile for a little while on like two telex machines, you know what I mean? You don't need a lot of computing power, but you need to be using uh, technology in a way, as he says, that like flips that circuit so that you're attenuating the things that need to be attenuating and you're amplifying the things that need to be amplifying. And, um, it's all very clearly written out about like which way that needs to go always attenuate up which is a great way to like maintain autonomy and amplify down which is a great way to like actually make things happen you know what i mean so it's all very good it's all very very good um i don't know what else we can say about like trying to organize in a left project um i suppose it's just like what this book is saying is just like take it seriously i know we mentioned that at the beginning but like it is like lib like yeah liberation is a very serious project and we do need to actually start taking it seriously and that involves seeing yourself in these recursions and that you're not just a guy that goes and makes some phone calls for a politician to say that you did it on like instagram or twitter or whatever like you're somebody who's taking this stuff seriously and you're part of a broader organization that's going to make things happen um you need that and you also need the organization <laughs> and a lot of like left sex you get the first of those things which is just the like i take myself seriously dude but there's nowhere for that energy to go other than as you say like selling newspapers or whatever so um this is all very serious stuff and i think i guess the only other thing i want to say is just that like uh it doesn't hurt to learn from what exists now i remember when we interviewed june wreath she i asked her if she thought that if capitalism was a viable system. She was like, well, okay, I, like that has a very technical definition. So no, you could not say that because they don't follow these organizational structures or uh, uh, dictums. But like at the same time, it is a system that is able to perpetuate itself extremely well. And you see all these anti-acilitary devices um, and we need to learn from those. Let's also learn from what doesn't work. I mean, Jesus Christ, so much doesn't work that like, once you start to model for yourself things that do work, you're going to start to see cracks in um, different organizational structures, I guess, because once you understand them, hey, you'll go, oh, there's a weak point. You know what I mean? Um, I saw somebody talking about how useful it would be uh, when we're actually doing like protests or whatever to not just throw your strength all at one place because you realize that like, hey, you know, police departments, that's literally what they're trained to do is go in when there are a couple thousand people and just kick the shit out of them and get them to leave. 
But hey, if you actually like study their structures, what they're really not able to do is like go deal with like a uh, hundred protests all happening at the same time of like a uh, hundred people or a thousand mm. people or whatever like that. So, and what that example would represent is both um, a strong like what in this book might be like a management function, right? Some mm. ability to coordinate that kind of action, but at the same time, it recognizes that all those micro protests couldn't possibly be coordinated from some central place. Exactly. Yeah. And they could all actually operate with the tactics. Supposing that a tactical repertoire was agreed upon as as being broadly effective, you could choose whichever elements of that tactical repertoire you wanted to implement based on that situation, which a sort of central management couldn't possibly have enough information, have enough mm. variety to actually make decisions upon kind of thing. And they don't so get that's a really that good too. example. Like, cap, like the establishment, whatever that may be, like they really don't understand that. It's, yeah, whenever you see like, you know, they arrest one anarchist and they go, it's the ringleader. And he's like, you fool, I'm an anarchist. There is no leader. So yeah, that's another flaw. <laughs> yeah, imagine if Scooby-Doo like pulled the mask <laughs> yeah. off and it's just like... Someone else. <laughs> it's like, I also don't but, know who you are. Yeah, yeah, but also maybe the, the reverse of that example is also true. The reason why the police aren't very good at meeting all these micro-protests, I've mm. decided to call them, <laughs> is because they are attempting to do top-down management, mm. but they don't have the variety because it's impossible to have the variety to actually coordinate that kind of thing. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This yeah. stuff rocks. Yeah, I think, I think the thing I'm going to take away is like, I don't know whether it makes sense or not, but I'm going to think <laughs> about this idea of like, your systems and organizations need some kind of management function, but it doesn't have to be management in a sort of like bourgeois business sense. Mm -hmm. And what you said um, earlier was really interesting to me. I hadn't thought about it in this way, is that like, there is a management aspect to basically all levels of recursion and almost all activity that's happening in the viable system model. Um, and this is something we're probably going to leave out of this podcast. But like, if you go and read these texts, if you go and read his other stuff, there's so many, so much detail is given to the various relationships between all mm. these levels, right? It's not like five dominates four, four dominates three, three dominates one, and sort of two, three also says what two is kind mm. of thing. Um, we've, we, we have covered this. Like, they have specific functions. It's, it's, it's um, drawn in a sort of vertical hierarchical way. But... There's all these def they they perform their definite functions. Their relationships are um, sort of like coordinated or defined through almost democratic principles. In the sort of like there has to be some kind of agreement with like system three and system four to say my this function is going to be this and your function is going to be this. Or there has to be some kind of agreement between the management level of system one and the management level of system three, which says, okay, we're going to say these things, but mm. you're going to be left to do these jobs. Yeah. Um, everything is decided in some kind of quote unquote democratic way. And if we wanted to decide, design like uh, democratic worker managed corporations, you just make those relationships more democratic rather than be decided by two or three suits. You decide it by the entire company kind of thing. Yeah. Um, those, those relationships have to be defined and people have to know what they are and follow those rules and up until the point when they have an opportunity to change them. Mm. But um, they do have an opportunity to change them, I suppose. Is my yeah, point. no, absolutely. Yeah. One, thing, one thing this is making me think is, remember when we read a group of International Communists, the Fundamental Principles book, and we kind of dunked on them for being like, well, what's your political structure? And they're just like, a cascading system of councils. I don't know. There's a big council at the top. It's kind of like, <laughs> is that recursion? Yeah. <laughs> like, it's not, but that it's very funny. Um, yeah. 
This stuff's all, this stuff, it rocks. I, I'm always really interested, I think, uh, whenever we read this, whenever we read the history, but um, this is so fresh and so like, I don't know, different than typical Marxology that uh, it's good. It's very good. Um, and as June said, like, I think, you know, you always get that if Marx were alive today, but it's like if Marx were alive today, he would love this shit um, because it's just, it's kind of just like, yeah, I don't know, systems theory. It's a, you see a lot in what he writes. So um, all very good. Another beard. We got him. Um, and we're back. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we are back. We're back. Yeah, we probably should have said this at the start, but go and listen to our interview with June. Yes. <laughs> go and listen to our episode on designing freedom. Mm-hmm. Go and listen to our two episodes on Eden Medina's cybernetic revolutionaries. Mm-hmm. Go and watch our YouTube video on uh, the viable system model. Then come back it. and listen to this. Yeah. Again. And then actually what you should do is just go listen to General Intellect. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe <laughs> just, forget all of those that. and go and listen to General <laughs> Intellect. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Well, we'll be back again with something cool and awesome and fun. Um, but I would really suggest people, if you want to, I think if you want to get into Stafford Beer, either just read Cybernetic Revolutionaries, because Ian Medina does a really good job of touching on the things you need to know about, or just read this. Because, I mean, like, if you are an organizer, this book would be perfect for you. You know, you're, you, you have to kind of pick and choose with, like, what to take and what not to because you're not some capitalist schmuck. But um, this is literally written for you to do exercises along with him. So I've never read Brain of the Firm because it's, like, $45,000 on, like, a used book site. But um, I don't know. This one's mm. very useful. I would like to imagine there was at least one sentence in this book that would blow everybody's mind, maybe. Oh, yeah. So Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. Go and get it and find that sentence for yeah. yourself. And it's also, having said all of this, like, he does have his central dictum, which is, if it works, it's out of date. And, like, at the very beginning of the book, he's like, um, your... Uh, if the way you draw your organization looks like uh, the models in this book, that's insane. You, nothing should ever look like the models in this book. And also, like, things are always changing. Things are always in flux. So he says something like, you know, the, a model for a system is never exact. It's more or less useful. So, you know, take everything that we've said with a grain of salt, <laughs> I guess. Um, okay. Well, like Dan said, go do all of the things. And um, we'll be back again soon. And... Uh, Good to be back in the Imperial Operational Core number two. <laughs> yeah, welcome back. Um, it's Mary Isle. Yes. Good to have you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we are indeed back. We will be back again in less time than we were last time back. Yeah, thanks everybody for listening. All right, see ya. The music you heard this episode was Music to Kill Bad People Too by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. If you like this song, you can check it out and much, much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com. Be sure and follow us up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you like what you heard, be sure and tune in next week for some more comedy discussion. Till next time. Whoa.